This week, we flip the script in the leadership and communications section, CISO in crisis. Will SEC cybersecurity regulations make a difference? NIST drafts major update to its widely used cybersecurity framework and more. In our second segment, we air two pre-recorded interviews from Black Hat 2023. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. According to the 2022 Data Breach Investigations Report, the human remains the number one driver of breaches today, demonstrating that cybersecurity is no longer just a technical challenge, but a human one as well. But how do you manage the human risks of cybersecurity? It starts with measurement. Only by effectively quantifying human risk can organizations engage employees with relevant activities to truly change human behavior. That's human risk management. Map key human behaviors to the business risks that matter most to your organization for free by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash living security. If your organization is ready to embrace edge computing, we have good news. The 2023 AT&T Cybersecurity Insights Report provides everything you need to know to get started. In the report, we identify the common characteristics of edge computing. We found edge use cases are rapidly coming online, and we reveal how to secure edge computing, which is a dynamic, nonlinear, and unconventional approach to computing. Most importantly, you'll learn how to prepare for your edge ecosystem. Get your complimentary copy of the report today by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash ATT cybersecurity. That's securityweekly.com forward slash ATT cybersecurity. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 316, recorded August 14th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Alderman. Joining remotely are my co-hosts for today. First, Mr. Jason Albuquerque. Hey, Jason. What's going on, Matt? I'm excited. Preseason football is in full effect. NFL season is soon to come. Loving it. Yeah, so I was watching. I only watch a little bit, right? As I was telling you before the show, but I saw the binary defense logo on the Cleveland Brown Stadium. And I was like, oh, that is so cool. <laughs> How cool is that? How cool is that? <laughs> no, nah, it's good. I mean, we're uh, we're testing out our rookies and seeing what that roster is going to look like for the year so uh, so we can have at it when the season rolls. Absolutely. Also joining us this week, welcome back, Mr. Ben Carr. Hey, Matt. Good to be back with you and Jason after a week out last week doing some family stuff in uh, Florida. It was hot there and come back and it's hotter here. So yeah, it's uh, just par for the course, I guess, Texas summers. Welcome to Texas, Matt. Oh yeah. Well, we were in Ohio for this weekend and it was uh, 80, 85. So I got a little relief for a few days. Oh, nice. But then we got, yeah, it was nice. But then we got some big rain. I'm like, can you send that down to Texas? Like I, we need it down here, buddy. Whew. <laughs> Yeah, we could use some water for sure. Yeah. Security Weekly listeners, now is your chance to join the InfoSec community as they come together at InfoSec World 2023, September 23rd to the 28th at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. 
Here keynotes from Scott Shapiro, founding director at Yale Cybersecurity Labs, and Rachel Wilson, managing director and head of cybersecurity at Morgan Stanley. As a Security Weekly Community member, you're able to receive 20% off your InfoSec World 2023 tickets using code ISW23-SECWEEK20. Register today by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash InfoSec World 2023. Well, with the interviews, the pre-records after this, we're going to go right into articles. And this first article I pulled was CISO in Crisis. Uh, there's been some interesting articles since the SEC regulation announcements a, a couple weeks ago. Um, I pulled in another one here in a second. But this one was a little interesting because, you know, you, you think about the role of the CISO. And we've had a lot of conversations on here about some of the challenges, struggles, etc. This guideline comes out, but we still see a crisis with the CISO. I think we do. Right. Right, guys. Oh, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, oh, I don't I think, think that's so. the pressures, right? The, the pressures don't stop. You know, we have regulatory and compliance changes that are constant moving target um, with all with all the new innovations like artificial intelligence, quantum down the pipe. You know, the threat landscape is constantly moving. And now you have board of directors and executives speaking cyber all the time, not to mention all the other aspects, vendor risk, you know, the expectations of of what the what the CISO brings to the table. You know, they call that out here. You know, many times it's the it's the pressure of being a scapegoat if something does go down. So it hasn't stopped the pressures, no doubt about it. Yeah, I think uh, I think there, there's, it was an interesting read and it was an interesting take that they had on it. Um, there were some interesting quotes, right? Um, who's the most visible target? The CISO. Uh, the CISO sucks it up. The CISO takes the shaft. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, it, it's pointed, but it's accurate. Like this is this is right. what we see is you know it's this this Wally chief right among the, the other groups of chiefs within the company is also kind of to kind of take the brunt of of everybody else's concern, uh, and uh, that's 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 contributing to I guess the the turnover, uh, the frustration, and the stress is it's not treated with balance, even though it is as we've talked about many times typically one of, if not the highest risk in a company. So yeah, I, I would say CISOs are definitely in crisis. And um, while the, well, I think many were pinning their hopes on the SEC regulations, I, I don't know that that a fix. I, it, it's going to run ahead of us still. Yeah, I, 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 it, that's what leads into the second article, right? Because the fix could be the SEC regulations. So the second article, will the SEC security regulations you know, really make a difference. And it's funny, you, you, you read the first opening kind of paragraphs and it says, but will this change anything? Short answer, no. The longer answer, <laughs> maybe. Maybe, right. But, but at the end of the day, it's what you do with it, right? It's whether or not your organization wants to embrace it and, and make the necessary change and, and go down that journey of, of managing the risk as a, as a true strategic business risk, right? I mean, if, a lot of this burnout from the CISO side of the aisle is at the end of the day, the lack of the support and mutual accountability across the organization. You know, when, when CFOs or CEOs or boards of directors don't want to invest, they don't want to support security. They don't want to put the funding there. They don't want to give you the resources you need to, to make a difference. And that, then at the end of the day can point a finger at you and, 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 you know, blame you for, for anything that, that may have happened in the organization. And, 
we're starting to see criminal liability being thrown around here, you know, of course it's going to create that burnout. So it's what you do with it. If, if an organization wants to improve and, and actually embrace it, I think they can be successful if they ignore it and continue on with allowing the CISO to just be that figurehead with no level of influence. Uh, I think, uh, I think at the end of the day, it'll fail. Yeah, it, it, it seems like, you know, if we're going to give, you know, CISOs the responsibility and, and, you know, potentially hold them to legal action and, you know, ask for increased transparency, then I, I think in the, as an industry, we actually need real transparency in a way for CISOs to have that valve to be able to call fouls when they see this um, and not come under action or you know, if they're actually calling out real issues in the in the organization, right? I mean, I think we've moved away from the, you know, er everything's a problem. The sky is falling. That's that's not where we are anymore. I, I don't know many enterprise CISOs who are acting in that capacity. Um, so if you're acting in in the right framework in the right mindset, then I think you know, not having a valve to actually call a problem when you see one, and not be concerned about loss of a job or impact down the line. That's that's not helpful for anyone. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I did that manifest guidance and actually provide that, that valve. Yeah. I was looking through the practical advice from this article and there's, there was a couple interesting ones, you know, one, we, all this stuff we should already be doing, but the guidance from based on what came out of the regulation changes from the sec. So, uh, the first one, uh, embrace proactivity. Well, the only way to embrace proactivity is to have a risk-based approach. Like you can't be proactive if you don't understand how security risks align to business risk and you're measuring risk, right? So we go back to risk management in the next article, we're going to talk about enterprise risk management in a second, because it was so important uh, in this discussion that I wanted to pull in an article about, well, what does enterprise risk management mean? Because you can't be proactive if you're not measuring risk. Can you, Jason? No, not at all. Like we, like we talk about all the time, you know, we need to be actively managing risk or we'll end up reporting to someone. But at the end of it, I look at this article and that list of items that, um, that they're suggesting not as CISO suggestions. I think these are things that the entire executive team needs to be able to wrap their hands around and really be responsible for. This isn't just for the CISO. This is for the entire executive team. And to be honest with you, the board as well. Think about it. Engage the board as part of it. Well, the board needs to be engaged back, right? You gotta, uh, you're talking about having a compliance team, but what do you do with it, right? Are you sharing that with the executive team to make good decisions? Consider cyber insurance. You need your executive team being part of that so that way you can make sure you're protecting yourself from the overall risk. Your CFO should be involved. Your CISO should be involved. Your legal team should be involved. Manage your vendors. The CISO can't manage all the vendors on their own, right? It takes it takes a team to do that. It takes your executive team to have that management. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting call, it, Jason. I actually think it 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 is something that really the executive should sit down and figure out, like what is our approach to cyber and how are we going to treat this and what's our what's the tone from the top, not being just the CEO but all the executives. Like, how do we get everybody on board with the same mission? And if you have the same mission, I think you can execute. But if you don't have the same mission, then you're always, you know, there's, in, there's infighting. So I think that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, the CISO cannot accomplish all of these things by themselves. 
So there has to be skin in the game with the entirety of the executive team around all of these pieces of advice. Yeah, and I think the wiggle room for the executive team is determine a materiality. So this gives them an opportunity to decide what's material and what's not material, which is a mm -hmm. little squishy, which we got to be careful with. And then yeah. obviously the disclosures you're going to have based on that materiality, right? That's like the squishy wiggle room for the executive team because, because there weren't more kind of hardline or, or prescriptive um, requirements. So th this is kind of the out clause because I, I don't know if it was this article or another article they were talking about, you know, Walmart's disclosure statements currently that they do today and how would those change under this regulation? Yeah. I don't know that they're going to change that much. Right. <laughs> well, and that, that's going to be the challenge, right, for the CISO and the rest of the staff and the rest of the executive staffs to figure out what is material. And if there's a conflict, wow, that can be that, that's where the meat of the problem is going to be, right, is the, the challenge if the CISO thinks it's material and somebody else is trying to say it's not, then you're, you're a little bit stressed with figuring out is there a future that come of this if I think with it not being material. Yeah, I think this is where, you know, we talk a lot about building relationships across the entirety of the executive team and the organization. This is where the CISO has the opportunity to soften the earth and have conversations ahead of time and start prepping other executives to be able to, to understand, um, you know, where risk is and the materiality of the risk and start building that, that consensus and that tribe walking in the door when decisions are being made. The decision shouldn't be being made for the first time in that, in that executive team meeting. You should be softening the earth well ahead of time. So that way, you know, you have your stakeholders on board with you. Absolutely. Well, it, it goes back to like tabletops, right, Jason? I mean, you got to practice this stuff. You got to have those discussions and say, okay, here's the scenario. Is this material? Okay, let's tweak the scenario. Is it material now? Like, like what changes right. it and where do we feel that material comes in? Not, not necessarily so you can figure out in a tabletop, but so people can take that away and be like, man, how, how do I think about this, right? And if you're engaging with those conversations, you're having those practice sessions, you're, you're I think when a, some that muscle memory is going to be built where it's not as, you know, people aren't making the, the, the calls that they wouldn't make if they had that prior training and education and information. 100%. So Jason, this next article is for you because you said it takes an entire team, right? Mm -hmm. And so this article really talks about who participates in risk, enterprise risk management and what's their role. And, and it starts <laughs> at the top with the board of directors, but the list of P I, I don't think people understand like how important the overall risk management and all the participants of a risk management process need to be. Matt, at the end of the day, it would have been an easier article if they listed who shouldn't be involved because it's everybody <laughs> needs to be involved. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, it goes all the way from the board, all the way down to department managers and then staff as that overarching you know, involvement. It's everyone. Everyone needs to be involved in risk management. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the analogy, you know, uh, you, folks know I was in the Marine Corps and one of the first things you get trained on in the Marine Corps is... Every Marine is a rifleman. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter your MOS or what school you're going to or what you're going to be doing on the norm. But at the end of the day, we need to make sure that you're a warrior and that you can go out there and do the core functions of the Marine Corps, which is defend this country, right? So every Marine is a rifleman. Well, guess what? Every employee 
is a cyber warrior, every employee is a risk manager. Because I want interns identifying risk. I want entry-level folks identifying risk and raising their hands. It's everyone. It's the only way to be able to combat this. Yeah, I, you know, I think we talk a lot about CISOs trying to have a seat at the table. And it, it is interesting how many people actually have some peripheral uh, part of the conversation about risk. But when you're looking at, you know, I counted the, these numbers on the, uh, uh, there's 14. And I mean, I, I, most companies I look at, you see the, you know, the, the C-level staff at kind of an eight to 10 number. And when we wonder why, you know, the CISO doesn't have a seat at the table and it's difficult to have those conversations and figure out, you know, where they fit in the, in the structure. 14 is a big number, right? And I'm sure other people would put other people in this in this list that reported to the CEO. So, I mean, when you think about structure and you think about who's having those conversations, you know, Jason, you mentioned earlier, you, you've got to build those relationships. You've got to have part of that conversation that exists outside outside of the boardroom and outside of the, you know, the, the C-level staff meetings. Yeah. And, and Ben, I mean, you know, as well as I do, at the enterprise level, the CEO is trying to minimize direct reports, right? In some instances, 100%. you see CEO, <laughs> then chief operations officer and chief revenue officer. And then the entirety of the organization goes down from there. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and many, in the many instances you see maybe, maybe a handful, maybe a handful of direct reports. Everybody else is going to be one more tier down, right? So, so at the end of it, you have all of these filters going upstream. That's the challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how much is getting filtered out at each level as, as it mm -hmm. rolls up versus having a more flat structure or or more visibility into some of the risk across those different roles? So, yeah, it's an interesting challenge, to say the least. Uh, NIST is going, they're drafting a new update of the cybersecurity framework. Now, there's a couple really interesting pieces in this. You know, when it was first announced, I remember I was I was at RSA. We were, I, I was at, uh, on the Archer team when we when this was first kind of brought out into the market, and it hasn't really been touched. Uh, what like ten years, something like that. So you've got the first draft that comes out. A couple major changes in the draft. Number one, they don't talk just about critical infrastructure anymore. Originally, cybersecurity framework was about protecting critical infrastructure. They removed the critical infrastructure to be more open to all industries, which I think is something we needed way, way long ago, but glad they finally did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, all industries were using it as a base framework anyway, right? I mean, that's, right. uh, you know, I've seen the CSF as a, as a starting point for so many org organizations, so many verticals to get their, get their toe in the water and actually start making some progress. So, uh, so I'm glad they're they're adapting it to to be a little bit more agnostic to your vertical. It's great. Well, look at the end of the day, like if you think about, okay, you're in critical infrastructure, you've got vendors that are critical to your operation, right? And right. so that yep. supply chain means everybody's critical infrastructure in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's naive to think that there aren't interdependencies there that can impact really important parts of infrastructure. Yeah, agreed. But it was every, you know, some people took it as as it's only for critical infrastructure. I think it it was being used more widely. It's opened up more widely. The second major change I pulled out of this article was the domain, the new domain of governance 
Now think about mm-hmm. that for a second. We're talking about SEC requirements and compliance and all this other stuff. So they've added this governance domain or governed domain to the original identified protect, detect, uh, recover, respond. I-, I haven't dug into the details yet. I'm curious whether how it how they interrelate those pieces to the rest of the 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 structure, but. I'll dig into that after this, now that I've seen that it's been released yeah. for comment. Yeah, and I mean, in, in many instances, you know, security leaders and organizations were leveraging that govern govern portion outside of the framework, but obviously influencing the framework. But uh, but to see it embedded in is is going to be interesting. I, you know, I can't I can't wait to see how how the final comes out. And and just so everyone's aware, I mean, they're accepting public comment until I think November, right? So. We still have the opportunity to influence any addition, changes, ads, modifications that that we'd like to see. So, if folks are out there, go go look at the draft, and they're accepting public comment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. Next article: uh, redefining leadership. Uh, obviously, we talk a lot about leadership on this one. This is a Forbes article, and you know, as as I see good Forbes articles get pulled across, I, I kind of grab them and pull them in. And this one talks about kind of the the evolution of, of leadership in, in org structures, right? Because I think there is no right structure anymore. There's so many variations, organization to organization, industry by industry. And what this article tries to do is be like, look, organization structures can vary, but these are the things you need to focus on, right? Focus on right. emotional intelligence and communication. Like those were the two big takeaways for me out of this article. One hundred percent, you know, and and it and it supports the fact that an org chart doesn't necessarily define leadership, right? So it's not about the org chart; it's about being a leader within your organization and making that impact. And the two core pieces are emotional intelligence and the way you're able to communicate, right? Communicate with your stakeholders, communicate with your audience, and and we talk about a lot emotional intelligence is a skill that allows you to be able to communicate the right way to the right person at the right time in the right format, you know, because you're, you're being empathetic to their feelings, the way they work, the way they communicate. I, I hearken it back again to that servant leadership style where you're thinking about others, right? You're thinking about how you can help others be better. Absolutely. Ben, any comments on that one? No, I just think it's, you got to figure out what the organizational structure looks like and what the, uh, I don't know, what, what the what the emotional intelligence of the org is, right? And how it best fits into your approach to leadership style. And this stuff is a, it's a pendulum, right? It swings. It's about uh, what the right approach is and you're, you're approaching it, not just on Hey, this is my title, and I can get this done because of a title. That that just never works. I, I think it's uh, yeah. I, I I align with where Jason was on this. Yeah, and it ties back a little bit into the enterprise risk management conversation we had, right? When when you listed out like fourteen roles, like how do these roles get aligned to the CEO? They don't all have direct reports, but how can you leverage, you know, un- communication skills and understanding kind of your role in the organization? How to communicate communicate to different levels to create more of a enterprise risk management environment. Like I, I, you can almost associate these two articles in some respects say it doesn't have to be a hard structure, but somebody's got to do these roles and there has to be communication in, in discussions across these roles to get to the overall outcome. 
And I think mm-hmm. this article kind of highlights like there is no right structure. No, yeah. no, 100%. And, and again, you know, leveraging that emotional intelligence and the ability to communicate effectively, you can design your communication in a fashion that, you know, you can articulate a risk in one way to the CEO and then kind of change your communication style a little bit if, if there's a different personality or, you know, if you're communicating to the CFO. It's okay to adjust the communication based on who you're communicating to. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the CISO's biggest capital is influence, right? If you can get influence mm-hmm. with people and build consensus, you're going to go much further. That's right. Yep. That ties into this last article a little bit because I love the way he framed this, some of this out in this last article, which is, you know, creating uh, a roadmap for your dream cybersecurity job. Okay. And he, I, I don't know, it's down towards the end, Jason, but he talks about technical skills, leadership skills, and business skills. And yep. he says, if you want to be a CISO at a Fortune 500 company, the role should focus on leadership skills, which is why we spend a lot of time talking about leadership. Yep. A CTO at a cybersecurity company would require a focus on technical skills. Now, this is where we've had some struggle with the CISO role in the past being a technical role versus a leadership role, but I love right. how we frame this out. And then, obviously, the CEO at a cyber, uh, you know, at of a cybersecurity company needs to focus on the business skills, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've gone through this transition myself over the years. I started a very technical with a very technical set of skills. Uh, I learned leadership skills. Then I took in those into the business skill side. So I've, I've hit all these buckets. The question then that you have to answer yourself is, where do you lack certain skills based on what role you want to go to? And then how do you map out which, which direction you go next? Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, your, your career path is, is very similar to mine. Started off uber technical, right? And then worked my way up through leadership and, and really started to lead, study leadership and, and how to be a good leader within the organization. And then from there, you know, started sharpening my business acumen, really learning the language of the business, learning the language that, that helps support your company and your business and, and, and really bring it to that next level of, of growth and expansion. Um, you know, at, at this point, I think for folks at our level in our career, there's there's so many different. I, I have what I mean. We've talked about it before this personal board of directors that I learn from all the time. Folks that I trust who are more experienced than me, who've you know been there, done that in business, and, and I try to tap as much into them as I possibly can to learn more, get guidance on direction, get guidance on next steps. You know, career pathing. Uh, and then just being part of different, um, you know, d- different networking groups, you know, CEO, chief operating officer forums and, and, and groups and, you know, cybersecurity leadership groups and, you know, really just getting exposed to, at this level. Um, yeah, I, I really think it's, it, it's a scenario where as you're mapping out the future of your career, just lever- leverage the resources around you that you can find. Don't be afraid to reach out to people to mentor you and help guide you. No, no matter what phase of your career you're in. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as you're, as you're starting out in your journey and mapping out your career, be an observer, right? Find the mm-hmm. things that work. Look for, look for the people who you want to mirror and imitate because you see that their style is working for them and it's getting them further in business. And then look for those people as mentors and establish those mentorship relationships where, you know, I think those things will carry you very far in your career. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, somebody summarized it really interesting uh, a week or two ago saying, when I look at your background, you're either a product-focused business leader or you're a business-focused product leader. And I thought mm. that was a really interesting way to summarize <laughs> it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's kind of right. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then air two pre-recorded interviews for Black Hat. Created in 2005 and hosted by security industry veterans, Paul Security Weekly is your source for in-depth coverage of the latest vulnerabilities, exploits, and security research. Our weekly security news discussion dives deep into the security issues we face today and potential solutions in a fun and lively atmosphere. Each week, we bring on guests from the security community to learn about their journey and discuss topics relevant to their work and research. You can also subscribe to our show by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe or look for Paul Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher. We've recorded a ton of content over the years, so we created Spotify playlists featuring some of our favorite episodes, including interviews with Marcus Random, John McAfee, and Chris Roberts, to name a few. You can find them at securityweekly.com forward slash starter packs. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our program. Here we are, the first full day I've been here a couple days, but it feels like the first real full day of Black Hat USA 2003 here at Mandalay Bay. And I am pleased to be joined by Mike Fay, co-founder and CEO of Island. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So just to start, um, talk a bit about your background and how, you know, the journey to forming Island. <laughs> Well, I started on the technical side as an engineer, uh, worked my way up mm -hmm. in through cybersecurity, um, pre-sales and, and helping customers succeed, then became a general manager, uh, and then president COO of a couple of uh, larger cybersecurity companies, and I actually retired. I, I decided that uh, I had done enough and I needed a break, and my co-founder brought me this idea for what if we change the way browsers work? And I found it very interesting, and the more I thought about it, it was so compelling, um, I, had to, I had to join up with him, and we founded Island right in the middle of COVID. Uh, and it, ever since, it's kind of been this passion that we've had, and, and the passion stems from, it's such a disruptive idea that's time has obviously come. It felt like a great thing to spend, you know, the remaining part of my career on. So the remaining part of your career is focused squarely on the browser. Yeah. Talk about why that is yeah, so the, the how it must be. The browser is this amazing thing. If you think about how it came into companies, don't think about it like a consumer, but like an enterprise, it showed up as just part of the operating system. Yep. And we didn't think that much about it because when we first came in contact with it, we were looking at little static HTML pages. We got a little bit of information from them. And over time, we started getting more information. We started getting attacked from it. We started you know, browsing more interesting stuff. But as of late, all of our major applications are delivered to that browser platform. You know, you're not going to go down on the show floor here and meet a company that's writing to a Mac or to a Windows box. They all write to that Chromium open source project that is the browser. And so it became our operating system. But nobody invited it in as the operating system. And it is now this operating system, but it's consumer-based, and it serves an amazing purpose for those consumers. Mm -hmm. But when we look at it from an enterprise, there's so much we could do with it, and there's so much complexity that is originated by the fact that it doesn't cooperate with the enterprise. 
And it's really that understanding of the impact you could have on cybersecurity, on productivity, on the business, and the end user, and how you can make all of those situations better if you just took a look at it from the lens of what does a corporate you know, citizen need opposed to a consumer. Yeah. And now everything is done through the browser. Everything. And so let's talk about some of the specific challenges. Um, I know we've focused a lot on a lot of phishing attacks have just moved directly to sure. the browser. Mm -hmm. But uh, talk about what you see as the landscape right now. Yeah, let's let's take it to even bigger than a single attack. What, what really mm -hmm. happens if you think about it today, for somebody to feel safe in a corporation, that business interaction is going to be backhauled to some centralized location where we determine if the website's a safe website. We're going to break the encryption that's not supposed to be broken. We're going to stare inside of it. Then we're going to slap it on a peering network to move it on its way. And then when we decide that the data we're interacting with is so important, we're going to try to block every port of export, the USB, the Bluetooth, and all these crazy things. And then when we have the audacity to say, well, what if they work on a BYOD device or they work on a, you know, a phone? We're going to put MDMs and MDMs. And we do all of this because the browser didn't cooperate. And when we finally get super frustrated, we literally slap it in a VDI session. And that's so we have all these contractors and call centers that are literally backhauling to the backhaul to the you know, governance process when all it could be is a policy that runs on the browser that ensures our data is safe, our networking path is safe, and the interaction is safe. And then we can start to do things like automating the tasks that those call center workers do and those BYOD workers do. And that's what's really driven our success, is, is looking at the whole picture, not trying to just singly focus on a, a given attack, but what if we're collaborative in that? So we often integrate into other security products to bring what they can do to the forefront, but we give them that built-in security approach opposed to outside looking in. It's, this is great because you answered my next question, <laughs> which was, let's go through enterprise browser and yeah what makes it tick, but talk about, um, you know, the browser is in, has become the tool now to conduct business. Sure. But consumer yeah. browsing, which obviously yep. you're out to remedy. So talk about those differences. Sure, sure. Well, let's just talk about how you would use it. Mm -hmm. You know, you get that shiny new Mac, that iPad, that Dell machine, whatever it is. And let's say you're one of the millions of BYOD users, right? Where you, mm -hmm. you maybe work for multiple companies. Or The reality is when you go shopping and you go to entertainment, you use that consumer browser. It's amazing for you. Now you think about your enterprise browser as more of a portal. You click on that company's browsers. They click on it. Their policy runs it. Everything they need to have trust in that relationship with you runs inside of that. You get trust because you know your privacy is still intact. They're not taking over your machine. They're not trying to get involved with you and your doctors and everything else. But when it's time to go to work, you can do that. We literally work with some consultants that have to have five, six, seven machines. And now it's just a browser. They can just change what company they're working in. And so that experience of the separation of work-life balance and the difference of the duality of those opens up so much mm -hmm. when you separate it. When you're trying to do it all in one, you end up sacrificing something, whether it's your privacy, your productivity, your security, something gets put at odds. And this freezes up to rethink how that works. 
Now, one thing I find particularly interesting is um, the integration of ChatGPT. Sure. And, you know, I, I think it's a given that this week at Black Hat, <laughs> AI is going to be pretty much all everybody is talking about. It's a big topic. There'll be, you know, there'll be an array of topics, but it's always going to come back to the question of right. AI as a solution and as a threat. But talk about the approach you've taken when it comes to ChatGPT and integrating it. Sure, so luckily for us, what we did with ChatGPT can be replicated across all of the different platforms. Mm -hmm. So ChatGPT was obviously the first loud one, you know, the, the big scene, so we went there, but we've done it across you know, many since. And what we're able to do is bring to an organization the ability to have control over the operating system that that's gonna run, that browser. When should we let it run? How should we let it run? Are we using it to validate information? Are we using it to, to confirm, to pr boost productivity? Or is it describing medicine? Is it moving out information? Mm -hmm. And the challenge that organizations have is there's thousands of great use cases for AI, and there's a couple that aren't so great. And the couple that aren't so great are getting the focus and blocking all the productivity. So we integrated it in so you could have full control at a policy level over what that user experiences, does, and integrates with that AI environment so we can give the control back to the corporation so they can embrace productivity much faster. Yeah. And so this is interesting because when I'm in discussions about AI, there tends to, at least right now, be a lot of among executives kind of trying to stay away from it. Yeah. And you've chosen to embrace it. Very much, yeah. So talk about that. You know, I've always felt that as a cybersecurity professional, we have to find a way. Mm -hmm. We are here to make our companies, you know, productive, profitable. When we impede the ability to be productive and profitable, we forgot what our role is. Mm -hmm. We're a bodyguard, you know. We don't block you from going somewhere. We enable you to go there and do your job effectively. And we saw that same thing with AI. You know, when I sat down and I was sitting at a large banking conference and, and the CEO of one of the largest banks in the world talked about the value of AI, he talked about how AI's true value at first is about com confirmation. Did we make a mistake? Is this the right thing? Does this look right? It's ability to look over our shoulder and point out anomalies and point out those mistakes. You can use that anywhere. So we thought about how do we let that show up but keep us from uploading our primary data and, and how do we measure that, that, that flow? You know, I, I use different extensions all the time. I'm terrible with grammar and things like that. The idea that I get a customer contract once a month that can't be uploaded, but the world suffers from poorly written emails as a result, that's something that we had to break. And so now we just gave it contextual aware engagement. So when can it run and what can it run on? And that's determined by that company's need for productivity, not by the security team's fear of what it might do. So, but there do need to be some guardrails. There do. So talk about the sure. guardrails that you've constructed around. Yeah, I think we need to appreciate, depending on the AI system, and, that, and that's key, because we keep lumping all AI as ChatGPT, right? And, and that's certainly one of the, the most known. Not every AI exposes all data to everybody. Mm -hmm. We have to appreciate that. But that is a major fear. We could be working on a major M&A activity, right? Something that would move the stock market and we're out pushing those reports up, getting them to help us refine them. And all of a sudden somebody can query that environment and you know, understand that insider information.
So just a couple ways we always have to appreciate what is the data we're getting and what access are we getting. Automation's another concern. If you feed the data incorrectly and you ask it to take action, you could trick it into taking an action that would be detrimental. So we have to also control what happens to the AI response. Is there a human governor in that? Should there be one? If I'm a doctor, there should be one. Maybe if I'm applying this to a fast food order, we can take the risk. You know, if your Taco Bell order comes in sideways, we'll all live. And that's the, the kind of the thought process by company that needs to take place. Unlike, you know, you mentioned uh, you know, malicious attacks. Mm-hmm. Those are categoric. Nobody wants that phishing attack. It doesn't matter what you do. And so cybersecurity now has to evolve to go situational awareness is going to be part of our future. And we've lived very much in a binary existence for the most part. And now we're going to have to evolve and really understand what the business is doing to enable it. Into the brave future we go. (laughs) No doubt. So, been great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you. Have a great week. Um, Today, I think, will be the busiest of the days. It is a busy one. So, thank you. Have a great day. Welcome back to Las Vegas Black Hats 2023. I'm Jeff Mann, one of the co-hosts from Paul Security Weekly, and I'm sitting here this afternoon with Kareem Tuba, who is the CEO of a company called LastPass. Kareem, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Hey, just to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So, uh, CEO of LastPass, been here a little over a year, um, and uh, spent, uh, let's see, 24 out of the last 26 years as we were talking about earlier, in and around cyber. Sure. Uh, one of the most interesting and dynamic spaces. Um, and prior to that, I was CEO of a company called Kenneth Security, which was in the uh, risk-based vulnerability management space. Yep. That was uh, acquired by Cisco and then spent time at companies doing crypto, uh, spent time most of my career in and around the product world. Great. Yep. And uh, a year at last pass. Yep. Hmm. Interesting timing. <laughs> it's interesting timing, indeed. <laughs> well, well, you know, welcome to the jungle. Thank you. Thank um, you. It's always fun to be here. How are things been? Let's say for the last six months at last pass. Yeah. Good. Good. We've, um, you know, obviously had a, a, a initial incident uh, that the market was well aware of yep. uh, a couple of months after I came on board, but um, uh, we've been doing a, a lot of work uh, uh, since then. Uh, including uh, releasing and building some capabilities uh, to uh, not just shore up defenses, but mo- more importantly, or just as importantly, really starting to make investments in and around passwordless, um, mm-hmm. which uh, really enables uh, organizations and individuals to you know start thinking about what does the journey look like as I start to use that un- that that factor that not a lot of people had used historically in the world of okay. something you are, something you have, something you know, right. how do you start to use the uh, something you are uh, a little bit more like biometrics and, mm-hmm. and other mechanisms? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, on our news segment back, you know, December, we certainly talked about the news of LastPass and uh, it got me thinking because I have a cryptographic background and, and very familiar with something you have, something you know, something you are, and also have been doing PCI forever where that's a requirement. Yep. It occurred to me that people that use password vaults, that's no longer something you know. Yeah. And I like started thinking, how many clients do I have where they don't even know their passwords? So they're yeah. technically not meeting the, the, the requirement of multi-factor authentication, yeah. which is a PCI requirement. Yeah. And um, uh, that sort of 
spun me off on a little research project. It was the holidays, uh, and and you know, it was it was a squirrel that I chased for a while, <laughs> but it, it it made me uh, realize that uh, you know, I'm not a big advocate that you know this industry is constantly evolving and constantly changing. The technology certainly is, um, but the idea of MFA this thing that we all know this mantra has only been around less been around less than 20 years yeah 2004 is the first time i've seen it in a published nist document yeah and uh it's kind of time to rethink the whole thing yeah which i think is what we're going to talk about um to start though um i love to when we have a conversation about topics just to make sure that everybody's at least somewhat familiar with what we're talking about so could you give a just a brief description of what it is you're talking about when you say passwordless. Yeah, yeah, sure. So look, if you look at the sort of prototypical authentication paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. You 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 and I went to a site or a service, we created an account, we put in a username and a password. Right. Those username and passwords got sent to the third party. They right. stored it, encrypted, do all the security around it. Um, hopefully. and hopefully, <laughs> so you would hope. Right. And then from there, you would, uh, I would use those two components or credentials to authenticate myself routinely from any device. And so there's a lot of benefit to that. In theory, as we all matured, you mm -hmm. would start to create better practices and hygiene around, you know, random, unique, right. long, strong, hopefully things that aren't susceptible to brute force passwords. But that becomes hard to remember when I have, you know, over 200 logins across different services. But in the beginning, there was only one. But in the beginning, there was only one, right? And it's there a much more complex world, yeah. a much more complex world. Yep. Um, so, but, but the idea of, and, and of course, with those came all sorts of threat vectors, but mm. the idea of password lists is that um, we all have things like our face, biometric uh, mm. mechanisms, fingerprints, things of that nature. And the world has moved on enough that uh, whether you're talking about a device like a desktop that has fingerprint ID on it, right. um, a device like your smartphone that has either face ID or touch ID enabled, or even third-party devices like uh, 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 Phaeton or YubiKeys, things of that nature, most of which most people don't have, but certainly most people have laptops and smartphones. You can actually, in fact, use the biometrics as an authentication means mm -hmm. into a service instead of the username and password. And that's right. at a high level, that's what passwordless is about. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of technology on the back end. It just so also happens to be that the technology behind passwordless mm -hmm. uses something called passkeys, which basically uses public-private key pairs and digital signatures okay. that make it unique, much stronger, and takes out a whole category of uh, potential attack vectors right. Um, right. that security and IT administrators are constantly running around trying to scramble to defend against. So at the risk of oversimplifying, passwordless is simply something other than the something you know. Correct. It's and, something you are. And it's something you are. Correct. Interesting in my research, uh, in, in I forget the years of the earliest writings about it, and of course I came from the National Security Agency and we used to be the authoritative source for all yeah. this stuff. And it shifted to NIST because NIST was in the unclassified world and we couldn't talk about the things we did. But the, the early mentions of multiple forms of authentication, even from the very beginning, I think everybody acknowledged passwords are not a great idea, but it's what we had to start with. Yep. And the, 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 the Mecca 20, 25 years ago was biometrics, mm. but at the time there wasn't technology there to make it scalable and yeah. economically feasible. Yeah, to roll out hardware. To everywhere. roll it out. Yep. Um, 
the sort of the the initial fallback and was a lot of NSA what appeared to be NSA driven ideas of some sort of cryptographic token. Yep. You know, remember a dongle? Yep. Oh yeah. It was uh, on on the side of my belt. Used to pull it card yeah. with X509 certificates or the RSA, that you put on. Uh, yep. You know, key fob, yeah, that RSA, type of thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that was in, uh, I forget which 800 series it was, but there was a draft version where I first saw the something you have, something you are, something you know. But really you should be using a, a, a cryptographic something. By the time it was published, and it was only a couple months later, it was something you have, something you know, something you are, and that cryptographic thing had kind of disappeared. Yeah. I haven't done the research to find out what was the politics involved. Yeah. There. But, uh, okay, I'm more comfortable now with the definition of passwordless. Talk to me a little bit about what are some of the other things that are out there these days besides throw away the something you, you, you know. Yeah. What, what's the, what's the, the next best option, and is there still a need for, is more than one better than yeah. Just one. Yeah, I mean, look, multi-factor in, in, in its construct is actually quite a good idea mm. and has been. It's not just technically sound, but it provides another layer of security right. uh, and capability, right? Because what, what, what do we know, having been in security forever, there's never a single solution. There's a constant evolution from an attack right. attacker perspective. And so, you know, attackers are super smart. They eventually find ways to get around the technologies that we all build and deploy. And so this idea of multi-factor just makes the bar to right. pop a youth, right. pop a huge higher, which I think in, inherently is very good. I think that the, the real thing we have to think about is the usability of it, right? There's always mm -hmm. this tension, especially inside of organizations, right. between practicality slash usability versus security. Right. right. I mean, how many how many times have you been inside a room let's, making that let's argument? Call it what it is. Right. Convenience. Convenience. That's exactly. And and, and and ultimately, it's 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 not convenience. It's the cost. It's the cost. Yeah. In terms of lot, the time it takes. Yeah. The, the lost uh, productivity. productivity and, that's right. And things like that's that. Right. So that's right. That's all dollars. It's it, but it's also the familiarity of it, right? Sure. I mean, you know, I mean the the world in and out of work has been. The, those lines have been completely erased now. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm logging in a bunch of things, working on a bunch of devices, accessing a bunch of applications and the lines are blurred. And so you want something that is familiar to users. Cause if you think about, if you think about security and IT teams, mm -hmm. what they predominantly want is something that is ubiquitous and that they know they're going to have a high adoption rate. And there mm -hmm. isn't a huge amount of training to be done. So, Things that are multi-factor, um, you know, whether you're using Duo technology or whatever technology, to, you know, even if it's got some geo component next to it mm -hmm. that gives you an additional layer of security, is generally a good idea matched with the capability to go passwordless. So if you can combine those things, mm -hmm. then you're not only adding an additional layer of security, but you're really, again, removing y yet another class of potential attacks against the, against the user. So kind of the obvious question for me is LastPass... Password Vault, something in, well, in theory, it was the something you know, you know piece. Now it's something you have. And now it's something you have. That's right. So what are you guys doing to that's passwordless? Yeah. So it, one one thing to remember before, before getting on to that is that these transitions take forever, sure. right? I mean, we talked about how, how long MFA has been around. Walk around, 
the organization and ask people how many people have actually deployed MFA, right? Mm -hmm. SSO is another technology that's been around for 10 plus years. I do years. PCI, everybody. Well, there, there, <laughs> there you go. I mean, SSO has been around for a decade plus. Not every enterprise app is SSO sure. enabled yet, right? Sure. So these transitions will take a while. And therein lies, I think, both the challenge, but also the opportunity. Because what uh, sort of our view and our approach is, look, we're not going to wake up tomorrow morning with every application being password enabled. By the way, mm -hmm. When I when I want to create a passwordless environment, yes, I have to do some things, create pass keys on the user side, and create the right experience. I also have to in inject some code into the application mm -hmm. to make it password enabled. So there's a server side, app side code work, and then there's the client side work. So these transitions will take years, right. and so the question then becomes, and our which sort of led to our approach after research is to say, look, we want to create a passwordless experience to the user. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to access my vault in a passwordless way, in a variety of passwordless ways, meaning that I want to use biometrics for my phone. I want to use a third-party device like Phaeton or YubiKey for the organizations that really want to sort of desegregate that. Okay. Today, we announced full FIDO2 uh, compatible support for any FIDO2 devices, including YubiKeys, but smartphones and others. Okay. And that will give us the opportunity to allow users to have biometric and uh, passwordless access to the vault mm -hmm. and then store pass keys inside of their vault if they're yeah. accessing a site that supports passwordless or secure usernames and passwords inside of the vault and let the vault determine what the back end needs but to me as a user i still experience a passwordless experience to the vault gotcha so yeah i, I see the need for the transition and to, in some ways cutting edge today but three years from now, you'll look back and think, wow, that was really primitive how we did that. Correct. That's exactly right. <laughs> gotcha. And, and you know, what, what, one of the best things that we can do as an industry, I think, is make these more complex, somewhat technical transitions um, transparent to the user. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, the more we can all succeed, and that's not always an easy thing to do, but the more we can do that, the broader... The, the better we'll have at that conversation of that whole convenience versus security, right? Yeah, and that, I mean, that's been a, a goal, probably one of the most daunting holy grails of yeah, our industry yeah. from the very beginning. That's right. To make the security transparent. Unfortunately, there's a lot of users out there that think there's transparent transparent security in place where there isn't necessarily. Yeah. But somebody's surely got it covered. I wouldn't be able to do this. Uh, somebody's got to be watching. That's it's right. It's somebody else's problem. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, any sort of last word, la messages you want to get out to our audience? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, you know, like, like many of these transitions that have occurred, you know, over the last 10, 20 years in tech in general, but in security specifically, mm -hmm. um, there are uh, there are always sort of key investments that have to be made up mm -hmm. front. But, you know, you sort of got to have staying power and you got to have a clear strategy. And passwordless is a classic example of that. Hmm. When, when you think about passwordless, and as I talk to organizations about this, they have to think about it in sort of multiple lenses, right? If mm -hmm. you think about it pretty simply, I've got things that I access that are applications. Right. I've got things that I access that are systems. And I've got things that I access that are um, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I may be accessing VPN infrastructure. I may be accessing my laptop desktop. Right. I may be accessing uh, my CRM app if I'm a sales rep inside of an organization. 
And I think organizations have to think about each and every element because the the promise of password on the technical side, the reduction of the attack surface, the mm-hmm. removal of certain attack vectors is clear. Right. But on the user side is the more you can think about it as a journey that addresses each one of those domains, if you will, right. the more you're going to have success in getting users to adopt and have a uniform experience. Right. So you're sort of in that early adoption evangelism, Correct. get the message out, get people to start thinking differently about it. Correct. And ease us into it. Ease us, and, e- ease and, us into it. And then think about how you can, you know, be, because I'd love a passwordless experience to all of my personal applications as well, right? Great. Well, that's all the time we have for it. Thanks, Kareem. We could have gone on for hours. Check out securityweekly.com, LastPassBH for more information.